0: Hello and welcome to Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. Each week you'll hear world-leading scientists and experts talking about the most fascinating ideas in science and technology today. I'm Jason Goodger, Commissioning Editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. In this episode, I talk to Colin Stewart, an astronomy writer and speaker, about his new book, Time, 10 Things You Should Know. Your new book, Time, 10 Things You Should Know. So you've written a whole book all about time. Um, and I think it's not, it's not something that usually people think about very much. It's something that we experience and we think that we innately understand. But there's a lot more going on than just one increment, one unit of time, one second, say, simply following the other. I mean, obviously, you cover a lot of ground in the book. But as, as a way of starting, one thing that really interests me when thinking about time on um, an analytical level, is its ability to connect us to timescales that are beyond the realm of human experience. So in in, in the book, you start saying about how, how you can age things. So I thought we could start, as you're, you're from an astronomy cosmology background, a lot of people ask, how, how do we know, how do we go about calculating the age of something so old like the Earth?
1: Well, so the great news is that we have clocks littered around that we've worked out how to read. Um, And so one of the chapters in the book is rocks are clocks because inside many of the oldest rocks on the earth are slowly ticking clocks um, in the form of radioactivity. So uh, a radioactive atom is one that's unstable. And over time, it will start to decay and change into something else. But it does that in a really reliable and consistent way. So if we can count the number of changes that have taken place, we can then work back in time to see how long ago that that process started. So for living things, we use carbon, um, a rare form of carbon called carbon-14. But for really, really old things like the Earth, we're using, um, we're using uranium, which has a half-life of about 4.5 billion years, which which turns out to be about the same age as the Earth.
0: So that's it's one thing calculating the age of the Earth. That's impressive enough. But how about the age of other objects in in the solar system or even the universe so how do we go about um studying and calculating their ages
1: so for the solar system it's kind of related so we use a process called crater counting and it's basically the idea that if a surface has loads of craters it's old because it's been hit many times it's been around for a long time if it doesn't have many craters then it's fresh and new Um, And we can calibrate the number of craters with the moon rocks that were brought back by the Apollo astronauts. So we use the dating from the moon rocks, match that to the number of craters on the moon. And then if we see a surface somewhere else in the solar system, maybe um, on another moon of another planet, and it has a similar number of craters, we can say, well, it's a similar age to to the moon. And so we can calibrate it that way. Um, But once we move beyond the solar system, and if we're talking about stars themselves, then we need yet another method. And th- this is the idea that when you break up light from the sun or another star, you get the rainbow, right? Your famous spectrum of colors from, from red to violet. But what you notice, if you look carefully, is that there are different colors missing. You'll see black lines instead of certain colors. And if you look at this spectrum, it looks a lot like a barcode. Uh, and really, in effect, that's what it is. By scanning this spectrum, we can see what a star is made of. Because each of those black lines corresponds to a different chemical element. So we know, for example, that the sun is made of 67 different chemical elements. Whereas the oldest stars in the universe, the first ones to ever shine, they were only made of of hydrogen and helium, the the elements that the Big Bang made. So we can age a star by how pristine it is. If it's a really old star, it's only going to be made of what was available just after the Big Bang hydrogen and helium if it's a much newer star like the sun then it was born in the time when the universe was a lot more diverse and it had many more chemicals flying around so taking the inventory of a star tells us its age that the more things it has in it the, the newer it is
0: so just to so, sort of further explain the, these barcodes these black lines so that's due to different elements having different internal structures and absorbing different energies or wavelengths of of light right
1: yeah so each element has its own unique um configuration of electrons whizzing around inside Um, and that governs the way that light gets swallowed so each particular element swallows a very specific color of light um based on where its electrons are and so if we see a particular color missing we know okay that must be because of um hydrogen or helium or when they get to the sun iron and oxygen and calcium and that sort of stuff
0: so each of these each element has its own sort of fingerprint in in this way
1: exactly and so the more the more fingerprints you see from more elements then the younger the star must be
0: and so you you say about the the different stars having different um chemical compositions so with with the sun having heavier metals as opposed to the, the, well, the older stars. So why is that? So it's that, over time, the stars churn hydrogen
1: and helium into those heavier elements. So the first stars would have been made of only hydrogen and helium. But over time, the the nuclear processes going on in the core, fusion, starts to turn the helium into carbon, and then nitrogen, and then oxygen. And then as the star ages and dies, it makes um, neon and silicon and iron And then when the stars explode they spread those elements out throughout the universe and they end up inside new stars so when the sun was made it already had some of these uh heavy elements like laced inside it from the dead stars that had
0: gone before it so stars are essentially the the sort of chemical factories of the universe
1: if we had no stars yeah the universe would be hydrogen and
0: helium alone so sort of taking a different tack now um we're talking about stars we're talking about astronomy (laughs) So one thing that I find find quite poetic is when we're, we're looking, even with our own eyes, in, into space, we're actually looking back in time in, in an odd way. Could you explain that concept for me,
1: please? Yeah, sure. It's just to do with the fact that the speed of light is fixed. It takes time for light to get from one place to another. And light is how we see things. So we don't even have to talk about planets or, or stars to start with, if we just talk about our Everyday lives. If if we're in the same room and looking at each other, it takes about uh, a billionth of a second for the light to get from your face to my eyes. So I'm not seeing you as you are when the light hits my eyes. I'm seeing you as you were when the light left your face, which was a billionth of a second ago. So there is never a now. Whenever we see something, we are always seeing it in the past because it takes time for light to get to us um and my favorite analogy for it and the one i use in the book is it's like a postcard i mean we don't really get postcards anymore right we have email but you you imagine a postcard drops on your doormat it never tells you what the writer is doing when it arrives on your doormat it always tells you what the writer was doing a couple of days ago when they wrote the postcard it takes time for the message to get to you and so it's the same with light your face is a billionth of a second ago. The moon is just over one second ago, the sun eight minutes ago, and when you start getting out to the stars, you're talking hundreds of years, and then when you get to galaxies, you're talking millions and billions of years ago. So it always takes time for light to get to us, and we're never seeing the present; we're always seeing the past.
0: I think that's a really a point worth sort of sort of hammering in home that the, actually the light from the sun takes eight eight minutes to reach the Earth, and if you put that into context and you think about how distant stars are, as you said, that's, re- that's really something to think about. And it's really mind-blowing, in my opinion.
1: It is, although with the sun, there's, or with the sun, there's an extra thing to add in, is, is that the, sun, the light from the sun is made in the core of the sun. So yes, it takes eight minutes to get from the surface of the sun to the Earth, um, but it actually takes 170,000 years to get to the surface from the core. So weirdly, you could have a star that is 100,000 light-years away and the light from that star would get to the earth quicker than it would from the core of the sun, because in empty space, you've got the, you know, it's empty, you can stream across, you've got nothing to bump into inside. The sun is so chaotic that, uh, that it takes 170,000 years to reach the surface. And then, and then yes, eight minutes to reach the earth.
0: So we're talking about things that we can see with our own eyes now, of course, for however many hundreds of years. We've been able to look further by the use of telescopes. So, what what are the sort of current limits of our ability to to look in into deep space and in into what I don't know what you call it, deep time?
1: Well, uh, both, yeah. So we normally say deep space, but you're right, it's deep time, and and that's such a, a useful thing for astronomers because we get to see what the universe was like two, three, four, five billion years ago because that light is just getting here now. So it's such a plus that we get to, to track the universe's history this way. I mean, with, if you're talking about visible light, right, the same light that our eyes can see, we can look back to a couple of hundred um, million years after the Big Bang. The trouble is that if you want to look back further, the universe has been expanding ever since the Big Bang and space has been stretching. And any light in the universe has also been stretching. So any light emitted by a galaxy back in the very early days of the universe, even if it was visible light when it left the galaxy, it's been stretched so much in the in the time between that it would now be in the infrared part of the spectrum, um, which incidentally is exactly why the James Webb Space Telescope is going up um, in the next few weeks because it's that, it's that infrared light that it's trying to see. But It's a subtle thing, but it wasn't infrared light when it left the galaxies. It was visible light, and it's been stretched since.
0: So that's the, uh, the 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 so-called redshift or the the Doppler effect. Yeah, exactly.
1: As, as the universe stretches, so does light, and uh, red light is, is a bit more stretched than uh, than blue light.
0: Yeah. So e- essentially, uh, anything that's moving away, because it's moving away, its it, uh, its wavelength is stretched, so it appears a different wavelength when it when it meets us, right?
1: Yeah, and it's something we're all used to. It's the same reason why, if an ambulance or a police car screeches past you. As it's moving away, you hear that tail tail change in the in the pitch of the siren, and it's because the sound waves are being stretched as the ambulance drags them away from you. It's the same with the galaxy and light. If the galaxy is running away from from uh, the Milky Milky Way, which most are, um then it, it also gets stretched, and, and that
0: makes it appear redder. So you you mentioned the James Webb Telescope there that I just wanted to talk talk about briefly because yeah, its its launch is imminent. Um and a lot of people call it the natural success to Hubble because you know, Hubble's been such a great success story. So um why why is it so important? Why is the James Webb telescope so important? Why is it so important to study these in infrared um this infrared light.
1: Well one of the things is that you always hear it called the successor to Hubble and that annoys me a little bit because it's a very oh, different, sorry. <laughs> well, no, not, not for you, I just mean it's a common thing because it, it, it isn't really. I mean it is in the sense that it's the next big NASA flagship telescope but it's just such a different beast to Hubble. It works in a very different way. Um, for starters it's huge, it's six, 6.5 meters in diameter and it has to be to collect the infrared light and also the earth is so hot you know, so emitting so much of his own infrared radiation that we have to go almost five times further than the moon with this telescope to get to somewhere that's cold enough. Um, but then you are able to look back into the very early universe. And it's because we want to know when the first stars lit up and we want to know when the first galaxies appeared because of that story of it being a, a circle of life, of that those first stars and galaxies were a crucial step to get to us And we want to know how that happened and how quickly that happened. But it also allows us to do other things. For example, those uh, dark lines we were talking about earlier that tell us um, what a star is made of. We can use the same technique to work out what a, a planet's atmosphere is made of too. Except some of those absorption lines, some of those dark bands, they don't happen in the visible. They only happen in the infrared. And so to work out whether, uh, so water, for example, is a great absorber of infrared radiation. So if we look at an exoplanet, for example, an alien planet's atmosphere, we can use James, James Webb to look, uh, look for those crucial chemicals too, like, uh, like water.
0: So sort of going back to what I originally said about how, uh, as human, human beings, as you know, living entities, we, we have a sort of innate understanding of time. And one that we take for granted, and one thing that's that's really essential to, to that is the fact that time only runs forwards. So at first glance, that seems like quite a simple thing, but actually there's quite a lot going on there, isn't there?
1: It, there is. It doesn't have to run forwards. So, for example, if you were to watch a film of a, a ball, tennis ball or something flying through the air, I think you'd really struggle to know whether you were watching it forwards or backwards. There's nothing in that that tells you whether it was thrown from left to right or right to left. It looks the same both ways. And in fact, most of the laws of physics are time symmetric. They don't really care whether time is running arbitrarily, what we say forwards or backwards. They work the same way. Except there is a situation where you really know something's wrong, and that's if you watch something break. Let's say you watch a a mug drop on the floor and it cracks into many, many pieces. If you were shown that backwards, you'd know that you were watching it backwards. You know, broken mugs don't suddenly reform. So we say that there's an arrow of time. And it was actually an astronomer, uh, Arthur Eddington, who came up with this idea or this phrase, an arrow of time. So time seems to point in one direction from the past and, and to the future. It's such a, a key part of our everyday lives, but we never really stop to think about you know why it runs that way, and it was only maybe two hundred years ago that we we started to get an idea of why it seems to run from, from from past the future and not the other way around.
0: So the history of this is is really interesting for me. So the this idea originally stems from perhaps if you you know if you don't you haven't studied physics and you don't know this from thermodynamics.
1: So yeah, thermodynamics is uh, I've got to say, as someone who studied physics a pretty dull part of physics. But it is <laughs> but it is the it is the secret to why time runs in the way that it does. Um, it is that things just get more disordered over time. So that's the second law of thermodynamics. It says that entropy always increases. Now, entropy means like messiness or disorder. So if you were to leave your garden alone for a couple of years, you know, it's gonna get messier. If you don't tidy up at home, you leave your kitchen and your bedroom alone, it's gonna get messier. It doesn't have to, though. So let's imagine. Uh, a box in the room that you're in, and this box measures a metre on each side. In that box, there are trillions and trillions of air molecules. Now, they could, and as they move around, they could all gather, let's say, in one half of the box. And that would have made them more ordered. They would have got more organised than they were before. But there are so many other ways that they could be disordered, that they can move and become more erratic. it's just far more likely that they do so in the book i talk about some examples actually one is just a set of six dice let's say you set the dice up so that you have the same number showing on each of them and then you roll those dice i mean they could go back to the way that they were they could stick in that highly ordered organized way but the chances are they're going to get more disordered and it's the same with a pack of new playing cards when you get them, they're all lovely and organized into suit and numerical order. If you shuffle them, there's no way you're going to get them back the way that they were. They're always going to get more disordered and disorganized. And so it's the same with the universe. There's all, we always see order deteriorate. And that's what gives us this arrow that points from the past where things were more organized to the future. Where things are less organized now i have a three-year-old and uh, we're getting a lot of questions right now it's like why 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 <laughs> why and to be honest it's surprising how often the answer is the second law of thermodynamics you know why, why does that break second law of th- thermodynamics why does this happen second law of thermodynamics so I, I say it in jest right but you'd be surprised how from the answer is actually the second law of thermodynamics
0: that's pretty heady stuff for a, for a three-year-old i reckon but like One thing that um, whenever I've spoken to people about entropy and, as you, as you say, disorder just naturally increases, that people will often say to me, okay, so as an example, we're playing a game of snooker. We, we finish the game and then it's obviously completely dis- disordered from the original ar- arrangement. The balls are all in different pockets. So when I re-rack the table and put the balls back into their original position, why doesn't that decrease the entropy
1: it decreases the entropy of the snooker balls right you've made the snooker balls more organized but it doesn't decrease the entropy of the entire universe because in order to do that you've got to put in some effort right you've got to pick the balls out the pockets you've got to you might lose some energy by knocking the balls together so that they make a sound so overall it takes energy to make that a more ordered system and so the the entropy of the entire system you the room the snooker balls, the universe, still the entropy still increases, and so overall, that you you maintain that sacred law of, of uh, thermodynamics. It always takes effort to, to to undo what's happened.
0: So obviously, we're talking about the overriding theme of time here. So if we're speaking about uh, entropy or disorder always increasing, what does this mean for the for the lifespan of the entire universe?
1: Well, eventually there'll come a time where there is no more order. We reach a point of maximum disorder. And then you can't borrow energy from anywhere in order to put the snooker balls back the way they were. And so you won't be able to organise anything into anything. We call it the heat death of the universe. And so the universe will just become a a cold and static and unchanging heat. I mean, the good news is this is a very long way away. We're talking uh, trillions and trillions and trillions of years, if that's the only thing at play, which, uh,
0: which it might not be. So, sort of looking at that from kind of the the reverse point, then. So uh, you say, as you said, the universe is expanding. That's why why we get the red shift and and the entropy is increasing. If we take that back to the beginning of the universe, what can, what can we learn about you you know? I guess I want to say the Big Bang and the beginning of the universe, the the beginning of time and the state of entropy and and the state of the universe then.
1: Well, the fact that we still haven't reached the heat death of the universe yet, and we're not even close to reaching it, tells us that the entropy at the beginning of the universe, just after the Big Bang, must have been very high. So it must have been very ordered at the beginning, and it's been deteriorating ever since, but we still haven't reached the point of maximum disorder. So we don't know why the Big Bang and the early universe appeared to be in this incredibly um, highly ordered state. It's one of the biggest uh, mysteries in cosmology and it's stood for for at least 50 years. And so if we could answer that, I think I said in the book that we wouldn't just tell us why time has an arrow. It might even tell us why we're here to experience time at all. Because if it started off the universe very disordered, it might have reached that heat death before any stars, galaxies, people, life could have ever uh, ever emerged. It took us a long time. The Earth didn't appear um, until the universe was about what, 9 billion years old. We didn't appear until a couple of hundred thousand years ago. So it took a long time to get to us, and it might not have ever had the chance if the Big Bang hadn't, for whatever reason, spawned a highly ordered universe.
0: So in the book, you have some really good analogies about the the timescale of the existence of the universe of the Earth and hu- early humans, homo, homo species. Could Could you just... Let let our listeners know that, please.
1: Yeah, well, we knock around these numbers all the time. You know, We've said the Earth's 4.5 billion years old. The universe is 13.8 billion years old. And it's quite casual to do that without actually thinking about what that's a huge amount of time. So some of the analogies were that if you had, this was for the age of the Earth, if you reduced each year to a second, so rather than having 4.5 billion years, you had 4.5 billion seconds, that's still 144 years. So you'd have to live two lifetimes, pretty much, in order to get through as many seconds as there have been years in the Earth's history. If you were to collect a penny for each year of Earth's history, then you'd be a millionaire, as you may expect. But also your pile of money, your pile of metal would weigh more than the Eiffel Tower. But then there are other things that weren't that, that, in the book in the end, which, but show you how we struggle with time. Now, the idea that the the Tyrannosaurus Rex lived nearer in time to the iPhone than it did to the Stegosaurus. Or the fact that you know, Cleopatra lived closer in time to the moon landings than to the to the Great Pyramids. Once you go back, you know, not so far into the past, it all kind of begins to blur into one. And we forget that the you know, different species of dinosaurs lived hundreds of millions of years apart from each other.
0: Yeah, it all goes back to sort of how we started with the um the, the sort of innate human conception of time and its passage, which I, I think is really interesting. Well, it comes, I guess it comes from the way our
1: brains have evolved, right? It doesn't really confer you much evolutionary advantage to contemplate four and a half billion years. It, it's useful, it's fun, right? But it's not going to stop me getting eaten by a tiger or, or, or you know, finding a mate or finding food. If you can contemplate the changing of the seasons with the moon and the phases of the moon and start to have a calendar and you know when to plant and you know when to harvest, then that's a lot more useful. So thinking in days and weeks and months and years probably is a useful thing to do, which is why we do it reasonably easily. Talking in terms of millennia and billions of years, yeah, our brains are, you know, our kind of primitive monkey brains are, weren't really built for that. So it's still possible, but it just takes a bit of extra contemplation. I think it doesn't come as easily.
0: So as we're talking about time, I think what most people would, would one of the, I think top five questions would be, what about traveling back in time? You know, it's, such, it's such a sort of sci-fi trope, it's captured so many people's imagination. But before we start to talk about slightly more complicated physics, I'd just like to have a look at the something I find really fascinating, which is the, the time travel paradoxes.
1: Yeah, this is where you, this is the really fun stuff. This is the stuff where you start to sort of really question your sanity after a while.
0: But if you think it through, it, it, it does kind of make sense. There, there are there are several that you mentioned. You know, several famous ones that that you mentioned in the book. But there are, there's some um, some that always come up. Which probably chief among is the the grandfather paradox. So can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yeah, that's definitely the classic one. That's your Back to the Future, Marty McFly at the at the uh, prom idea. So it's that if you go back in time and kill your grandfather when he was a young man, then he never grows up to have whichever parent it was that he had. And, and so that parent never grows up to have you. If your grandfather dies as a as a 10-year-old, you could never have been born. And so if you could never have been born, who is standing there with a the gun shooting him in the first place? So there's, there's a logical inconsistency there that something has to go awry. If you are standing there with a gun at your grandfather's head, you cannot kill him. It's just a logical impossibility that he is going to die because as soon as he dies, you never exist. So something has to go wrong. Maybe you try and fire the gun and, and you wound him instead of killing him or maybe you miss. Or um, It's called the Novikov consistency principle, right? The thing that causes the paradox to happen necessarily cannot happen for you to be there. Um, And the kind of related version to that is the famous Hitler um, assassination, which is another example of the grandfather paradox. There was a New York Times magazine poll that asked people, would you go back in time and kill a baby Hitler if you could? And the majority of people said they would, but you can't. Because if you go back in time and kill Hitler again, let's say when he's 10, he never grows up to be the leader of the Nazis. And so he never does the awful things that he's known for. So you never learn about him at school. And so you can never make the decision to go back and kill him because how do you even know about him in the first place? He's this like Austrian boy that has no significance to anyone. So again, you can't kill Hitler because if you did, your reason for being there vanishes, and so you can't be there. So that's the other sort of version of the grandfather paradox. So I'm sure there were well-meaning these people that said they go back in time and kill Hitler, but unfortunately, unfortunately you can't do it.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius. That was astronomy writer and speaker, Colin Stewart. If you want to know more about the nature of time, check out his book, Time, 10 Things You Should Know. Or if you liked what you heard, check out his online beginner's astrophysics course at colinstewart.net. Or to hear him tell me more about space-time, black holes and wormholes, head over to the Instant Genius Extra podcast. The September issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out now. Pick up a copy in store or visit sciencefocus.com. Thank mm-hmm. you.